Welcome everyone. I'm Sue Barber, author, former IT director for a Fortune 500 company, turn executive coach, and this is the Visibility Factor podcast, where we explore how to raise your visibility and play bigger at work and in life. We'll explore key topics and welcome guests that help you shift your thinking about yourself so you can see new possibilities for your leadership. I'm on a mission to create a visibility movement for leaders to show their value and be seen for their true talent. Are you ready to take the next step towards a higher level of visibility for yourself? Let's go. The visibility factor is brought to you in part by the Choose Your Life Challenge. Do you feel like it's too late to do something new? You have a good life and your basic needs are met. You have a place to live, a job that provides enough and friends and family to share it with. But it's all passing by so quickly and it feels like you're running out of time to do the things you wanted to do. Join Danielle McCombs and Christy Allinger, co-hosts of the Opposite of Small Talk podcast in a 30-day interactive experience that helps you to live a more intentional life. Through a combination of live sessions, video coaching, and digital social interaction, you will be guided through a series of ideas to explore your mindset and gain confidence to live the life you want. Sign up today by visiting theoppositeofsmalltalk.com forward slash challenge. Use promo code CHALLENGE4 for a 20% discount. That's theoppositeofsmalltalk.com forward slash challenge and promo code CHALLENGE4. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Visibility Factor podcast. This is Sue Barber, your host. I am so excited today to have Gina Cox with me. She is a member of the Top 3 Book Workshop that you are all very familiar with because I have had so many great authors on here. And her book is called Leading Inclusion, and it's coming out on October 11th. And I'm so excited for her and thrilled that she could be here with us to talk about it so you get to learn more about her book. Welcome to the show, Gina. Susan, I'm so excited to be here. I have been looking forward to this for a really long time. Me too. It seems like it was a long time before it was going to be here, and here it is. Uh, So exciting. So I would love it if you would introduce yourself and share with the audience a little bit about you and what's happening for you with the book. Oh my gosh, I don't even know where to begin, Susan. You remember that this is the point where you start to feel like a basket case because there's so much going on. But I'm an organizational psychologist and an executive coach, and I've spent my entire career really um, advising leaders and corporations about how to build healthy uh, workplace cultures and measure employee opinions and, and help their leaders be more impactful as an executive coach. And a couple of years ago, and um, 2020, um, May of 2020 or so, I decided I would write a book because this was an opportunity for me to take all of those years of experience and training, as well as insights from wonderful clients and other colleagues that I knew who were also organizational psychologists, and put together a book that was really intended to be a support, a, a guide, if you would, for executive leaders. And so the book, Leading Inclusion, is really designed for executives and board directors and MBA students and EMBA students, and maybe even people outside of the United States who are responsible for leading an enterprise that includes a portion of which uh, would be American workers. 
to help them understand some of the challenges in that that they might uh, be responsible for leading from the perspective of inclusion. And so the core message of, of the book, Leading Inclusion, is that, you know, human variation, it's a normal thing. And yet in workplaces, you know, we still have a challenge in managing or dealing with that human variation. My argument is we'll continue to have this problem until those executives and leaders lead the inclusion, the equity, the diversity, whatever you want to call it, work from the top of their organizations. Couldn't agree more. I mean, everything that you want to change in an organization has to start at the top. Otherwise, it's not going to get anywhere. Wow. I I love this. Uh, and I have so many great questions to ask you. And I thought what you just mentioned was really interesting. And I hadn't considered about companies internationally and having American workers there and how they might have different expectations of inclusion mm -hmm. than maybe that country that they're working in. That is so fascinating to me. Is that coming from clients that you've worked with? Yeah, it's coming from clients I've worked with. And it's also coming a bit as well from my own personal experiences and observations. The truth is, um, and you, you'll hear this from me maybe more depending on where we go in this conversation, but I don't really believe that there is such a thing as diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not in the way that most people use those words together as if it is a mm. thing. We can talk about that later. But what I do know for a fact is that in the United States, when we think about these ideas, what we're really talking about is the fact that we're also, we're not connected to one another. We don't understand each other. And then in, in a general sense, and then when you come into the workplace, it, it makes it even harder because you've got, you know, all the organizational dynamics and yet some people can't even make eye contact with one another. They don't include others and so on. That's a very American perspective that is very much influenced by our unique history, slavery, uh, especially with regard to Black Americans and African Americans, because not every group of color uh, uh, would have, you know, been descendants of slaves. But let's say we're focusing primarily on race and ethnicity. In the United States, it has a very particular history. There are other parts of the world where, for example, people look alike. I mean, they look alike just because they have basically the same DNA. They just happen to be across from each other in a geographical boundary. And they still have challenges with inclusion and diversity because the Northerners don't talk to the Southerners or, you know, the people from this sect don't interact with the group from this other ethnic group or sect. Because what we realize is that once you put humans together, we are really good at identifying how we vary and using that as a line of demarcation. We're not as good at figuring out what we have in common and using that as a point that brings us together. And so the last thing I'll say about in response to your very specific question was, if we're talking then about someone who is, has grown up in another country or lives in another place and does not know much about the American experience, but might be responsible for a global organization that is a, a large component of which uh, might be American workers, it would be a really good thing for that kind of person to understand this inclusion challenge from the American perspective. Wow. Oh my gosh, so impactful. So you just mentioned about not really agreeing with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can you share more about what you think it should be? Like what words should be used instead of that? Yeah, and it's not even so much the words. Um, let me back up and say that I don't agree with the okay. words put together as if it is a thing. Um, and, and Susan, the reason I, I don't agree with that is... For, for all of my career and certainly all of the research I've done about things that happened that preceded me in corporate America, when we put this diversity, equity, and inclusion thing together in a box, 
it tends to be, to be handled over there as some sort of a special project, special issue, special concern that only special people, certain people should address. And so for decades, what we had, especially since the 1960s with the passage of civil rights legislation, federal, what we've had is that people say, okay, diversity issues, okay, we need a black person, we need a, a Hispanic Latino person, we need an Asian um, American Pacific Islander to deal with those issues, we need a woman to deal with the women's issues, we need someone who is neurodiverse to deal with, like we go through this whole elaborate thing and what that means is it gets pushed over here for those people to identify the problems and identify the, the solutions. The other thing that happens when you do that is that we tend to then hire people to lead functions that we call diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what we ask those people to do is, well, we under-resource them. We don't give them political clout. And we ask them to fix those problems because somebody else doesn't want to deal with those problems. So we push them over to the side. And then the third concern that I have about doing this, which has been the pattern of the way we've handled these things in the past, is that we treat it as it, when we treat it as something separate, what we miss is that really these issues are really a subset of effective leadership. These are leadership issues. So I think of leadership as being effective at managing 100% of your workforce. If you're not effective at managing 100% of your workforce, I don't think you can call yourself an effective leader. So from that perspective, then, all this diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff, it's kind of like, you know, you're a leader, you need to learn marketing and understand all your people too. It's, it's not a separate thing. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. I love that you said it that way too, because I do feel like that is true, what you said about appointing specific people for specific groups and really thinking it's it's a huge challenge, right? Inclusion is a huge opportunity within an organization and one person cannot tackle it by themselves, especially if they don't have help. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, the minute you do it that way, the other thing that happens, especially if we're talking at the C-suite level, which is where I want to really focus the attention, it means that everybody's on a C-suite thinks, oh, I don't have to think about this anymore. They got that. Right. I don't have to think about it. I'm going to deal with what I deal with, and this is a separate thing. When in reality, it all needs to be infused into business strategy, sales strategy, product design strategy, go-to-market strategy, and all the other ways that you run a business. It's a part of it, not a, mm -hmm. a separate thing. Yeah. So what do you think are some ideas to help leaders be more inclusive, even in their own departments, with their own teams? I did a webinar several months ago, and a very wonderful young man, when we got to the point where we opened the mics, he said, you know, I have some women of color on my team, and I don't know how to lead them. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. That was an aha moment for me, because no one had stated that issue so very clearly. And so here's what I said to that person, which is what I would say to every other manager and leader. Someone has sold you a bill of goods, giving you some kind of idea that you need special and unique skills to deal with people who don't look like you, let's say. Well, that is not true. Whatever your leadership capabilities are, People of color, people who um, who are immigrants, people who you know look different or have variations because of, of the way that they were built, they don't need different leadership. What they need is the same leadership that you already know how to do. You just need to make sure that they're fully included. And so that sounds very simple, but the, one of the distinctions I would make, I think, is that when they see all these variations, they get a little bit intimidated by that and think they need to do something different. They also do the thing that humans do naturally, which is it's not familiar, 
I'm going to avoid it. It's not familiar. I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to offend it. It's not familiar. I don't want to ask questions because if I ask questions, you know, that just reveals that I am, that I don't know something. So I propose the opposite. I propose that whenever you see something that's different, and this includes humans that don't look like you or haven't had the same background, be curious, be inquisitive, get closer. It might not be the easiest thing in the world to do, but I have never, speaking on behalf of all women of color, which I should never do, but I will for one minute, I have never, ever been offended that someone was friendly, that someone talked to me, that someone asked me questions, that someone wanted to get to know me better, that those things do not offend me, speaking again, I should speak for myself, in any kind of way. What offends me is when I don't get included, when I don't get asked, when I get ignored. So one possibility is to think about what you could do differently that looks a little bit more like approaching rather than avoiding. And then very specifically, do think that managers, of course, are the ones that have the goods, right? You have the goodies. You have the pay increases. You have the promotion references. You have the access to training opportunities and and to highly visible opportunities. You have the behind the scenes stuff that you know that I don't see. So I do think you always have to ask yourself, am I considering all of the folks on my bench, my, my work team that I lead, when I divvy up these goodies, or do I have in any way a tendency to disproportionately focus on some and not on others? What I have noticed both from my personal experiences and from advising leaders is that this tends to happen not because someone is intentionally saying, I'm going to not include a group of people when I consider opportunities, Rather, it happens because you get comfortable and accustomed to dealing with these three or four people and they become your go-to people. Everybody just knows you're go-to people and you just keep go-toing those people. They're not bad people, but what if there's six other people over here on the bench could be equally or even more effective, informative, innovative, you know, whatever. You just missed out and you have no idea. And meanwhile, they're chomping at the bit. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. You know, it's so close in some ways, like when I think about people who are sitting at the table wanting to participate. And so in addition to those types of situations, it's I'm introverted, I'm hesitant to speak up, or I've had a previous experience that wasn't good, or um, I'm scared to be visible. I don't feel like it's safe here for me to speak up. And, you know, I may be judged for that. So I think there's so many different dynamics happening in a room that a leader has to be paying attention to and try to make sure that everybody has a voice. Everybody has the ability Mm -hmm. to speak up and share their ideas and thoughts. Otherwise you're missing out on a great deal of information. (laughs) Yes. Wow. So what do you think the biggest challenge an organization faces to implement some of these things that are, you're talking about in your book? Why do they struggle? Is it because they think it's someone else's problem or other reasons? Well, because my book is primarily targeted at the top of the house, but obviously contains lessons that can be helpful to anybody who's interested in in this subject matter. I would say for that particular audience, we have a very complex combination of factors that has caused this to be at a point where... um, 
I've been seeing these headlines, for example, that say two years after May of 2020, how come organizations aren't seeing more results when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Or, you know, that kind of headline is very prevalent. And I guarantee you, there'll be another round of those kinds of headlines come, you know, Black History Month or whatever, because, you know, that's how the media operates. So what the media is trying to get at, the reason those headlines pop is that their understanding from employees that they're really not seeing a significant change in their organizations, which is, by the way, why the subtitle of my my book is Drive Change Your Employees Can See and Feel. So why is what is getting in the way? Well, I'll be very honest and say, I when I walk into public spaces, I assume that maybe 50% of the people that I am talking to, number one, don't even think this is an issue that should be discussed in the workplace, or don't think that those at the top should do anything about it. And executives themselves will say, and said recently in a Fortune 500 article, about 70 something percent said, you know, we think we've talked too much about social justice issues enough already, right, basically. So that is one issue. Executives writ large in our corporations, some aren't even sure this is something that belongs on their plates. At the same time, of course, and employees are saying, not only does it belong on your plate, but we expect you to lead this effort so it's something that can really change because you don't really know how bad it can be sometimes. So there's that. I think another reason is the reason we talked earlier about earlier when we talked about just any manager trying to figure out what to do, that sort of psychological distance where uh, leaders are not necessarily close to or, or have contact with or understand the issues and challenges of those who might be the beneficiaries of this effort. I think that's another reason we aren't seeing more progress is that they don't necessarily understand these lived experiences and therefore don't see the urgency that the employees themselves might feel. I don't know who it was that was able to make it so that magically everybody thought implicit bias training was going to be the solution. And so in the last two years, I keep hearing implicit bias training, implicit bias training. And then, of course, you know, you hire a chief diversity officer, you're done. Everything is solved. But here's the thing. I'm not anti-implicit bias training. But however, it only gets at an aspect of, like, if you think the problem is this big, you know, soccer ball, that's a sphere, it only gets at one little dimple, or maybe it's a golf ball would be better. It only gets at one little dimple on this big ball. And so if you if you spent a year and a half doing all this training and cascading it and everything, that's not a bad thing. However, you really ought to have been focused more on the systemic issues that, you know, I've never heard people who are disadvantaged say, I want more implicit bias training or I want more diversity training. What they say is I want mm. change in my day-to-day experience in terms of how I am treated, in terms of access to opportunity, in terms of equal pay and transparency about that. And the, those are the outcomes that employees are looking for. It's nothing magical. Those are just three explanations for why we're not seeing more progress. Wow, it's not, I mean, it's just treating people like humans, right? It's, it's no different, right? <laughs> it, it, I, I, I feel that way, Susan. And that's actually why I say it's, it's not as complicated as I think certain people make it sound. Mm-hmm. And that's also the other reason I don't like diversity, equity, and inclusion as a thing. Because the, some people have a vested interest in making it seem extremely complicated. But if you put 100 people in a room and gave them the opportunity to interact with one another without the power and the just get to know one another, I think what you would discover is that people will find the commonalities, the similarities. I have a friend whose first name is Gina, by the way, and she spells it with an E. Her name is Gina Scurry. And she has a, a game that she has created just to help people connect conversations over coffee. 
and what I like about her game is the simplicity of it because she's not saying, oh, let's come up with a diversity, equity, and inclusion program to make people connect. She says, hey, when people get together, we'll play this game. They'll get to ask one another some questions. They'll get to talk and learn some more about one another. And lo and behold, there are two humans or six humans or whatever number. This is what we do. That was a bit of an editorial riff, but the, the truth is um, that I, I agree with you. We're just, we're really just humans. We have to, might have to work on this because we're not accustomed to it, but I don't think we have to overly complicate it. Yeah. I would totally love to hear more about that game. If you, if you can share it offline, <laughs> that would be amazing. Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about kind of the organization about the C-suite. What are you hoping that readers will take away from your book? I got a new, my latest review today and the best part of the review for me, and you can relate to this, is that the reviewer made note of the tone of the book. The reviewer said something along the lines of, you know, Gina has, you know, you know, carefully and persistently made her case. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly ad-libbing here. This is not exactly what they said. And, but what they used were words like, you know, that suggest optimism and support. What I want people to get out of reading this book is that I'm going to, I'm point, this is not an easy book to read because I'm calling out a challenge for leaders. On the other hand, I've dropped enough clues and tips, specifics about what I think you can do And I've tried to articulate my belief that you can do this. You can make America better. Work one employee at a time, which is one of the lines in my book. Because I think you can, and I think when you do whatever you do, your impact is going to be beyond your team. It's going to be beyond the walls of your organization. It's going to be broader because you'll be doing a little part to bring humans closer. Um, And by the way, they'll become more productive too. And it just makes them better people, not only for work, but for their families and and everybody. I don't know. I've always seen like these are big transformational topics, but I think people make them, to your point, so complicated and big. And it's really just a human to human conversation, starting one step at a time, doing one thing every day that maybe makes an impact for someone who no one talks to or no one to spend any time with. Because that's what keeps people at a company to begin with, right? If they don't feel like they belong, Absolutely. they're going to leave. Do you think there's any part of like this great resignation topic tied to any of this work in any way that people are not doing enough? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it is so clearly tied. And I do think leaders are starting to understand, although not all and not completely. So... In 2021, I think it was like in about March of last year, a reporter from the Washington Post did a story that I referenced in my book, and I don't have the um, title of the story, but its story was about a, a McDonald's somewhere in Pennsylvania, and all the employees were quitting. And the people who were holding on, trying to keep everything going, were the, the shift supervisors, and then they started to quit. And then the people who were holding on were the managers because, you know, they wanted to stand and, and, and be firm. And then I think at least one of those people quit. The word that this reporter used when she talked to the employees who quit was the word respect. And what these employees were communicating was that we want we don't feel we should have to sell our souls in order to be able to do our jobs. And we've, we feel when we come to work, yeah, we got a paycheck, but if it's unpleasant, we, we don't feel well regarded as humans, we feel disregarded and underappreciated. It was all of that stuff. So yeah, oh, by the way, there was also a mention of we need more money just to survive. So there was a pay issue there as well. I need to be clear about that. 
But if you took the cluster stuff, it's what I call re-estimation. So, um, you know, Anthony Klotz calls it the great resignation, and which is great. I know mm-hmm. him. He's he's also an organizational psychologist. I call it the great re-estimation. Re-esteem, the word esteem, to, because I think it goes back to what a human is saying they want in from whatever environment they're in. And in this case, they're talking about the workplace. So the great re-estimation, I think people looked in the mirror and said, wait a minute, I am so tired of feeling this way. And it all has to do with my work and it, and it takes over the rest of my life. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. I feel unhappy and, I'm, and I, walk, I come home, I'm unhappy. My spouse, my friends say, what's wrong with you? And I, I don't want that anymore. So I think it's related to that um, for sure. And the, the other implication since, you know, because of the topic of my book is that what we found was that employees of color, their scores, their favorability scores in terms of engagement, in terms of their overall experience in organizations tended to be at the bottom of the pile. And so the reason then that more employees of color said they were reluctant, for example, to return to the office and that they called for more hybrid work or they wanted hybrid and do want hybrid work to remain is they thought of it as a way to escape from environments that had not been welcoming to them in the past. So, and the, and the same thing for women, by the way. So all of these issues are intertwined. We are at a, a very unusual point in, in history, I think. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Just to hear that coming from, <laughs> just to hear that coming from you right now is so impactful. Just to think about companies I've worked with and, you know, a lot of people automatically just want everybody back in the office and they think it's about them like it has to all everybody has to be here everybody has to be together to get work done I think we've proven that is not true first of all and there are other reasons why people don't want to return to the office that you just mentioned and I bet they've never been asked that question so you know I know that executives there are a lot of executives pushing back on these issues and, and insisting that people come back to the office and I do agree that there are certain jobs obviously where it is maybe better or more important to have people together however I my advice to leaders of any size organization on these issues is not assume anything from the vantage point of your own personal experience because there's a high probability that your own personal experience is dissimilar to the experiences of the people that you lead especially lower down on the food chain. Here's the deal. I spent a lot of time in financial services and it was a male-dominated business. And when the folk that I was working with at the time that I'm thinking about, when they graduated from the fanciest business schools in America, they tended to be male. And one of the unspoken rules was that they would find a wife. And by the time they showed up to work in the investment bank, they would have a ring on their finger because they traveled a lot with their jobs. They traveled, you know, three, four days a week on the deals. And so the wife didn't work. The wife would be at home taking care of the children, Was very had a lot of financial resources with which to do that and a very great lifestyle. And that was sort of the norm. Now, I'm not criticizing that as a lifestyle. I, I know nothing about it because it wasn't mine. But what I do know is that it's not representative of everybody who worked in that company. Because if you take the person in the mailroom and the person working in the cafeteria and the administrative assistant and the person who has to get out of the office by five o'clock to take care of their children because they're a single parent. I mean, there's so many variations on it. If you are one of those people who have that special privilege that I was describing in terms of your lifestyle and you run this business, you might think everybody has that privilege, but most people do not. So you have to be really careful as a manager to, to always ask, what do you need? 
how may I help you? What's getting in the way? And not assume that it will, the responses will be the responses that you would give. I love those questions. And even another is, you know, like, how are you really doing? Because I feel like there's so many mental health struggles mm-hmm. with everything that everyone's been through with the pandemic and, and just this yes. new normal, if you want to call it that, that is still evolving. I don't know that we have a new normal yet and it's still in process, but it's so much... I think on the manager to think about now that they didn't used to have to think about and now they really do. You know, I will qualify one thing because what you just said is absolutely correct. And and there is one thing I need to say. If you are a manager in an organization and there are layers above you, a larger organization has layers and so on. I do think it is a little unfair that middle managers, what we traditionally have called middle managers, you truly get squeezed. Everybody's saying what we want you to do, but we're not necessarily providing you with all the guidance and support and the training so you can make these transitions. You only know what you know, right? You're busy. And you also have these same issues in your personal life, right? You're a human too. So that's one of the other reasons why I talk to executives as much as I do, because I want them to understand exactly what you just said, Susan, which is that there's so much change taking place in organizations. The leaders at the top who are sort of cascading expectations and say, I'll do this, I think managers keep getting new expectations every day. They're getting new expectations from the top and they're getting new expectations from their employees. We've got to be more conscious and purposeful of the need, the importance of supporting managers. Uh, And it's one of the areas where I see significant uh, opportunity and also a big gap and and the big opportunity. Beautifully said. I couldn't agree with you more. (laughs) It's it's the one area I think, and you know, when you think about C-suite, a lot of them will get opportunities for coaching. They'll get opportunities for help. But I don't think that's always true for the, the middle management levels unless they may do it on their own. So I've seen a lot more companies starting to look at doing some things differently there to help provide that support, which I think is really, really great. Yeah. How do you think an organization would define success in terms of meeting some of these goals and ideas that you have in your book? How would they know that they've reached nirvana and everything is great? So the one thing they mustn't do is just copy the, 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 you know, the hot topic of the day that they read about in the Wall Street Journal or wherever else they read it. Not to say that other people's ideas aren't good, but I encourage leaders to first start with defining a vision for their own organization. Put on the blinders and say, okay, I'm in com- I run company A. In company A, these are our, this is our workforce. This is what we need to deliver for the future. What would we need to set as our goals with regard to inclusion or equity and those kinds of things? What would make sense for us? And by the way, I encourage leaders not to define those goals uh, independently, you know, from an ivory tower. They've got to involve people, different stakeholders within the organization, as well as the very employees that they intend to benefit uh, from, from whatever they do. Then once they define that, then they need to communicate to the organization the why. And this is one of the things that I think is often missing. Why do we need to do this? And so they need to be able to articulate the why so that every employee can say they know why the organization is doing what it's doing and they understand the impact that it will have. Then what they need to do is to point out to, as we said just now, as they cascade this, as they share these these goals and aspirations with the rest of the organization, then they have to figure out how to make it real. That's usually in behavioral terms, in terms of, if you put it in behavioral terms, these are the things we want to see managers doing. These are the things, that this is how we want our organization to be. That's an aspect of, this is an aspect of, of a goal that might be set. 
then you got to hold people accountable for making the changes happen that you said. And this is actually an area where uh, I didn't say this at the beginning, but this is one of the things that causes the the lack of progress two years later is when there is no accountability built into this uh, kind of system. So then you get to the end and you can measure outcomes because you set specific goals that were time bound and you said this is what you wanted to see. Now, what should those specific outcomes be that you measure? I think that's what you're getting at. It will always vary. But be very clear that you might have diversity goals, let's say. And diversity goals are all about representation. We will increase our workforce over here by 5%, or we will have a workforce in this job group that is representative of the labor force in our greater metropolitan area, whatever. Those are specific diversity and representation goals. That's great. You might also need to have inclusion goals. Inclusion goals are the ones that we were talking about uh, before, since I focus on inclusion, which have to do with the day-to-day experience of the individuals in this organization. So you might have goals that have to do with measurement on your employee engagement survey, for example, and, and observing the patterns in favorability of scores for different groups of people, different geographies, different job groups, and so on. And trying to understand what's really going on here. So you might have goals that have to do with getting feedback about employee experience, because that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to inclusion. You might have equity goals. For example, one of the things that we unfortunately know, and we've known this for quite some time, is that there tends to be a significant difference in the pay rates and promotion rates for uh, employees in disadvantaged groups relative to Caucasian Americans in the workforce. That's, That's just a factual thing that I can state with great confidence. And so you might have equity goals that have to do with adjusting compensation, adjusting, you know, paying attention to promotion patterns and career mobility patterns. So... I said a lot there, Susan, because I was trying to give you some specific examples in each of those buckets. But the main point I was trying to make is there is no one goal that any everybody should have. Every organization is different. They don't all have diversity. Go- you know, they don't need to have all of those things. They might just want to have a goal that has to do with employee experience and culture. Because I actually think this is where employees can put up with a lot of things that aren't perfect if when they walk through the door every day, they can have a peaceful and respectful experience and believe that they can, that things will get better over time. Mm-hmm. It's all about seeing actions match words, making some yes. progress and just feeling like you belong there and that you can be yourself. You know, I think that's the other piece of it. I love all that you said. And I love that you shared those examples because not everybody may know where to start. So maybe they can pick one of those areas and just focus there as a starting point. I think that's great. So a big question for you. What do you think you want your legacy to be? (laughs) Legacy. Legacy is such a powerful, it's a big, big word. But, you know, um, actually, um, I'm going to have to read this thing because I look at it every day. Oh, (laughs) And it's a it's a quote from Oprah Winfrey. Uh, I I usually quote Maya Angelou more often uh, because she's had a profound effect, uh, impact on me. But Oprah, everybody has a calling, and your real job in life is to figure out as soon as possible what that is, who you were meant to be, and to begin to honor that in the best way possible for yourself. And the reason I love that quote from Oprah Winfrey is I don't think I figured out what my calling was until a couple of years ago. I mean, I've always felt like I'm somebody who tries to be on the side of good as opposed to any other possible side. You know, that's my that is who I am. But I never thought that I was making enough of an impact based on some of the things I understood. But I think in writing the book, 
I do have feel like I have created a vehicle, an opportunity for me to make it crystal clear how important this issue is for people in the executive suite and at the top of organizations who I think would do exactly what would be useful if they really had, had ever understood just how big a deal this really is and that they would get involved and not only delegate it in the way that we've described at the beginning where it's something set to the side. If I could see more organizations doing that and making those changes um, in the way they deal with this leadership issue, I would feel like I, I not only found my calling, but that I had found a way to sort of deal with it in the way that only Gina could Oh my gosh, I love all of that. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how our, writing our books helps us find our own purpose? And I I didn't expect that to be mine either. So <laughs> I think that's so fascinating. Yeah, well, Susan, um, I saw, saw some of your book journey. I didn't see the whole thing. I wasn't there at the very beginning, but I do remember where I entered into your book journey because I, I remember your book cover and when you first introduced <laughs> it and how it was, I, it's a great cover, as you know. Um, but I also remember you describing your own, your own why, your own origin story. And I, and it seemed very mm-hmm. familiar because I have some, you and I have some similar personality characteristics, uh, but also because I also had spent so much of my life in corporate America. Uh, and then I got to watch you. Now take this book, and here you have a podcast, for example, <laughs> which I, I don't know this for a fact, but I would have to guess that this is not one of the things that you would have had on your short list. You know, just to your point, you yourself have been transformed by writing your mm-hmm. book. Yes. I actually thought about a podcast, but it took me this long to make it happen <laughs> because I just yeah. wasn't quite yeah. ready to put myself out there at that moment, right? So it has definitely been a journey uh, for me as well. I totally agree. Okay, so we're going to transition into what I call the Rise Up and Be Visible quick tips. And I'm going to ask you four questions, and I would love to hear your responses on these. Fill in the blank. Visibility is? Visibility is essential if you want to make the world better and if you want to achieve your career goals. Do you have advice or a tip that you could share with the listeners on what you have done to be visible? Absolutely. Um, So I I don't have a high need for attention. You know, like that's not a personal characteristic of mine, but but I have a high need to have an impact because of this mission that I'm on, right? And so I have decided that I, you know, writing is is a way that I will do this. And 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 but I have been writing for a long time, not just this book, but a variety of things. Mm-hmm. So the tip that I have for anybody, wherever you are in your career, is to figure out what it is that you think you're working towards. Like me, you might not find your calling until way later in your life, and, and don't put pressure on yourself. <laughs> but you probably have something that you look out there and you see, and I, and it probably starts with something where you go, "Man, I wish I could." How did they do? Like, I would love to figure that out. Like, whenever you see yourself thinking about that, about something that you see, make a note about that. And let's say you pick one of those things. Start thinking now about what could you do to move yourself along the path? And I'm not talking about your employer now. You've got to separate your goals from your employer's goals and find ways that you will do, you know, people call it side hustle. It doesn't even have to be a formal side hustle. But every day, if you're not doing something that you know can move you on the line, just because, you know, your job it doesn't have it or whatever, you're losing an opportunity. So just get on it right now. Yep. Keep going. <laughs> 
what is the one piece of leadership or career advice that you've received that's helped you the most? Yeah, it's it's probably somewhat related to what I said, but I, it's it's this whole notion of a portfolio career. You know, I'm not the kind of person who likes to do one thing. I, I need a lot of variety and I'm very comfortable with change. It doesn't intimidate me. And in my career, I've done a variety of things. You know, I've been a reporter. Uh, I, I've certainly been a classic organizational psychologist. I've been an exe- I am an executive coach and I'm still a psychologist. I've been a professor. I've been a consultant. I've done a variety of things. Part of the reason I've done all those things, though, is because someone a long time ago told me, don't think of your job as your career. Think of a portfolio. Imagine if you had the opportunity to do all the things you really want to do that give you energy. Because in your job, you're going to have some things that don't give you energy, that suck your energy. Make sure you have, Mm -hmm. if you want to do some writing, if you want to do some teaching, if you want to do some this and some that, start to do it. And then when you put it all together... People will be amazed, actually. You yourself will sometimes be amazed. The other thing in this changing world is that the whole concept of the 95 job that you, you go into for 10, 15 years, it, it's gone away, right? It doesn't really exist. So the other advantage of a portfolio career, doing a variety of things, and by the way, that could include your hobbies. You know, you like doing things with your hands. You like doing, you like carving wood. You like making clothes. I don't know, whatever you do. Really honor that because the other thing in this environment is that um, it'll give you the advantage when one thing falls away because our, our, our economy is changing so rapidly that something that is really in today and in high demand is no longer that tomorrow. You'll have a lot more control of your career options and choices. Yeah, I love that. A diversity of options to, to draw from for income or for just fulfilling yourself, I think, in many ways, right? Okay, last question. What book would you recommend that you've read lately and love? Oh my gosh. Now that might be the hardest question that you have asked because <laughs> I I figured it might be. You no, know, I read I read so many books. I I, I some I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's an addiction because that would be bad, I think. But it might be, it might it might rise to that point where um, you know, sometimes I ask myself, well, why did you buy another book? But the book that I bought over the weekend, um, The title of it is Seen, Heard, and Paid. And the book cover has those three words in very large font, Seen, Heard, and Paid. And that grabbed me before I had heard about the book. But when I saw the cover, I was like, yes, they've put it all out there. And it's relevant to this conversation, though, because what this book is about is about how do you what do you do to take control of your career so that you can be seen, heard, and then paid for the things that you either love to do or that you're very good at? Now, that's a very that book has a, a, a targeted audience to some extent because it was written from the perspective of people uh, who are from marginalized groups. But here's what I think. I think those three ideas are applied to anyone. And I certainly recommend, I certainly recommend that book um, because it really relates to what I've been saying, that while I am asking corporate leaders to do all of the things that I'm asking them to do, there are two sides to this coin. And when I talk to my daughter and to people who look like me, I'm not, I don't tell them to wait for, for corporate leaders to do anything. I tell them, have a portfolio career. Start your start working on the things that give you joy so that you'll have some options. 
Develop your skills. Be very careful about your image and who you project yourself to be in social media because we, we let our guard down. Mm-hmm. When I look for you in the world, uh, starting with social media, because that's where we look these days, I want to see a complete picture of you and I want the picture to be favorable. I don't mean that you can't have opinions, but I mean, I want what would be the a reasonable person say upon reading this information about you? All of these are things, these are the things that I say to people who are moving in their careers, you know, and of course, be visible in ways that are, that will get you, move you, move the needle, but will have, will leave the persons and people that you're trying to influence more receptive to what you have to say next time, not less receptive. It's, it's not easy to do, but you have to set that intention and be consistent. I love every bit of that. Oh my gosh, that's amazing advice. And thanks for the book recommendation. I had not heard of that one, so I will definitely pick it up. So thank you so much for being here, Gina. I know the audience has learned a ton from you. I have definitely learned a ton from you. And I am so excited for your book to come out. I've already promised it to people that I'm coaching that I know are going to benefit from it. So thank you for writing it. I know, um, as you and I have both been through the same program, it's not always easy. <laughs> There's days you may want to quit. Uh, but having it at this point is just an amazing, really big accomplishment for you. So I'm so happy for you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to meet you, Susan, to get to know you. I love your mission and, and, and you know, the work that you do. I've, from the beginning, I understood it. And so, and it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. <laughs> Well, thank you for being here. I will include all the links to all the information to connect with you in the show notes. So thanks so much for being here and just sharing all of your brilliance with us. Oh, thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining on the Visibility Factor podcast, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to the Visibility Factor podcast. Remember that visibility starts with small steps that are intentional and consistent each day. Be bold, be visible, be the leader you were meant to be. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Follow us on all of our social media platforms, which are highlighted in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Visibility Factor Podcast.